We're continuing to look at John chapter 15. If you weren't here last week, you might want to pick up the podcast on that. But I want to look at verses 1 and 2 this morning, particularly, where Jesus says this. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, and while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. And last week, we talked about how Jesus says he is the true vine. And if there's a true vine, that means there must be false vines. There must be fake vines. And our world is full of fake and false vines that are trying to get you to attach yourself to them. Things that want you to draw life from them, to look for satisfaction and strength and significance from them. And yet we have realized that if we try to to find strength and satisfaction and significance in anything or anyone other than Jesus Christ, if we try to find meaning and purpose outside of Jesus, we will find ourselves disappointed and disillusioned because we were made for Christ. We were made for relationship with him. And like a deep sea diver, if the cord is broken between us and Jesus, very soon the life drains out of us. And so we were made for relationship with Christ and nothing uh, else can satisfy that longing in our hearts. And we saw that we exist for fruitfulness. This passage talks about bearing fruit, bearing much fruit, bearing more fruit, bearing fruit that will last. And that fruit is the life of Jesus within us. As we are in Christ, as we stay in Christ, he is the vine, we are the branches, and so his life, the sap, the, the vitality, the, the energy of the life of the vine of Christ flows into us. The Holy Spirit flows through the vine, comes into the branches, and then it flows out of us. It overflows. And so the Christian life is an overflow life. And so fruit is not about trying harder. Fruit is not about gritting your teeth and going, I've got the bear fruit. I, you know, I've never seen an apple tree get frustrated. It just bears fruit because it remains connected to the source of life. And that fruit we have said is, is, is the character of, life, of Christ within us. It's the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It is the fruit of seeing other people come to know Jesus. Yeah. It is the fruit of good works that it talks about in the Bible, and it is also the fruit of worship. That's the fourth fruit, really, that the Bible talks about. It is really all of Jesus flowing into us and out of us to the world around us. And so how do we bear fruit? That's what I want us to think about. Last week we saw the first way. The first way we bear fruit is this. We remain in him. Remember that? Remain, 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 remain. Eight times in about five verses, it says, if you remain in me, if you abide in me. Where do you abide? In your abode. What's your abode? It's your home. In other words, Jesus is saying, make your home in me. Let the place where you feel most connected, most comfortable, uh, most secure, let that place be in Christ. And as you remain in him, as you stay connected to him, the life of Jesus, the life of the vine will flow through your life and you will bear fruit. And so that's the first way we bear fruit is by remaining closely and intimately connected to Jesus. Let's continue reading in verse 2. And here we get into a passage that, uh, that uh, is a little bit more uh, complicated, maybe. Uh, he cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. 
And and my first point, I have three points, because all good sermons have three points. I have three points this morning. And the first one is this. It is possible to be around Jesus without finding your life in Jesus. It's possible to be around Jesus without finding your life in Jesus. In Jesus. Look at this again. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. And verse 6 If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. And I've wrestled with these verses all week. This sermon started out as nearly 10,000 words, and it's now 4,500. You're welcome. Um, But uh, I've wrestled, what do these verses mean? Is it saying that if you are a Christian and you're not bearing fruit, that God's just going to come along and chop you off and throw you into the fire of hell, and that'll be you? Because some commentators actually believe that's what it says, that that, that, uh, he's just going to get rid of you, that it's possible for you to lose your salvation if you don't grow as a Christian. I've heard some people say that, and, and as always, we need to be careful. We need to we, we can't take one isolated verse of Scripture and, and build a theology around that. We need to interpret Scripture with Scripture. We look at the whole picture. And in other places in John's Gospel and right throughout the Scripture, we read verses like this. Look at John six thirty nine. This is the will of him who sent me. Jesus said this, that I shall lose none of those he has given me. John 10 27 to 29. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. And they shall never perish. No one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. These verses seem pretty clear to me. That once we come to Christ and we genuinely, and that is the key word this morning, we genuinely make Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior of our lives. There is nothing or no one that can change that. Once you are truly, genuinely saved, born again, converted, whatever word you want to use, once you are truly born again, there is nothing that can change that. Why? Because Jesus says here that no one can snatch us out of his hand. And we've got a double guarantee. No one can snatch us out of the Father's hand. In other words, my ability to stay as a Christian, to keep following Christ, is not dependent on how tightly I hold on to him, but how firmly he's holding on to me. And that's good news for us this morning. Because we all wander, we all stray sometimes. And if we were just to read John 15, we'd think, well, if we stray, he's just going to lop us off and throw us into the fire. That is not the case. It is not dependent on how tightly I hold on to Jesus, but it's how tightly he is holding on to me. How tightly the Father is holding on to me. And he will never let you go if you have genuinely received him as Christ and Lord. So what do these verses mean? These verses are referring to people who are around Jesus, but have never been truly, genuinely connected to Jesus. And the evidence of this, that they've never been properly connected to Jesus, is that there is never any fruit of Jesus from their lives. There's never any evidence whatsoever of the life of Jesus flowing through their lives. And the example I used last week was the apple tree in our back garden when I was growing up. If you'd have told me it was an apple tree and for 20 years I checked and there were no apples, I want to tell you that is not an apple tree. It's just a tree. Because Jesus said, by their fruit, you shall know them. 
It is possible to be around Christians, to be around church, to serve, to give, to read your Bible, to pray, to come to Christian meetings and never be truly connected to Christ. The example I talked a few weeks ago, remember about the lady in my church in Lurgan, Margaret? She was a chaplain. She was a church warden. And yet in her 60s, she realized that she had never surrendered her heart to Jesus. Every single person in her world assumed she was a Christian, but she wasn't connected to Christ. She had never made him her true source of life, her saviour. I remember Paul Reid, who was here, what, three weeks ago, telling me once about in his church, there was a guy who he knew he wasn't a Christian because he'd had lots of conversations with him just about, and the guy's like, no, I'm not a Christian. But Paul looked down one day during the worship and the guy's got his hands in the air. He had just got caught up in the, but if you were watching him, you would have assumed he was a Christian. Because by all external appearances, he was doing the Christian thing. And yet there was no life of Christ within him. And so... When we read these verses in John 15, we need to think of the context. Remember the context I talked about last week? This is the night before Jesus died. It starts in John 13 with the Last Supper. And what do we read in John 13? Jesus has washed the disciples' feet. He shared the Last Supper. Who's at the table with him? Judas. Yeah? Judas had been with him for three and a half years, roughly. Twelve people... Looked like they're all following Jesus. Looked like they're intimately connected to Jesus. On the outside, they all look the same. And look at what Jesus says. If you go to the next slide there, Mal, real quickly. Sorry, it's a bit small. I I put this slide in about an hour ago. Jesus is talking about um, the disciples. He says, I'm not referring to all of you. I I know those who I have chosen. Um, But this is to fulfill this passage. He who has shared the bread has turned against me. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit. And testified, I tell you that very truly I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. And Jesus answered, it's the one to whom I give this piece of bread when I've dipped it into the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus said to him, what you're about to do, do quickly. But no one at the meal understood. The other 11 guys looked at Judas and thought he was just like them. They had no idea. And so what do they think's going on? Well, since, Jesus had cho- or since Judas had charge of the money, he had a position of responsibility, if you like, in the church. He was the accountant. He was the Andrew. <laughs> Nothing against Andrew. Andrew's not a Judas. But, but he was, like, you wouldn't look at Andrew and go, he's dodgy. Like, let's give him the money, you know? Well, apart from his wife, might. Um, but some thought Jesus was telling him to go and weigh go and buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. But as soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out and it was night. He went out and what did he go out to do? To betray Jesus. What for? 30 pieces of silver. Why? Because his heart was more connected to money than it was to Jesus. And so when we read that, you begin to understand John 15 a little bit more, don't you? That yes, it might have looked like he was in Christ. It might have looked like he was part of the vine. But ultimately, he showed himself to not be part of it because he walked away from Christ. He, his heart the whole time had never been fully 
with Christ. And even Jesus had realized this long ago. If you look back at John 6, which is eight or seven chapters before this. I love John's gospel. Seven chapters before this in the gospel of John. It says this. From this time, many disciples turned. Jesus, Jesus had problems with big crowds. Jesus was unhappy for you to follow him on your terms. You had to follow him on his terms. And so anytime Jesus sees a big crowd following him, he normally says something which is really designed to thin out the crowd a bit. And so this big crowd's following him. He says, if you don't eat my body and drink my blood, you're going to have no part of me. And it says many disciples stopped following him. It doesn't say many strangers. Many disciples. A disciple is a follower. It's a learner. In other words, there'd been hundreds if not thousands of people Round Jesus. But as soon as he says something they don't like, they all scarper. Why? Because they were around Jesus for what they could get from him, not what they could give to him. And there's so many people, I'm afraid, in our easy believism culture that are only around Jesus because they want something from him and they don't want to give him anything. And as soon as it becomes difficult, as soon as it becomes hard, as soon as the pressure comes on, as soon as they don't get a prayer answered, as soon as Jesus doesn't do what they want, they're nowhere to be seen. Were they ever truly connected to Jesus? I don't think so. They may have prayed a prayer. They may have raised their hand in a meeting. And and there's nothing. I've done all of those things. There's nothing wrong with any of those things. But those things do not save you. Genuine trusting in Jesus Christ for salvation alone is the only thing that can save you. Religion doesn't save you. Church doesn't save you. And praying a prayer doesn't save you. Jesus saved you. And when you place your faith and, and surrender and your life completely to him, that is what saves you. And so being around Jesus, being around Christian things, that's fine. But that will not save you. Jesus says you're like dead wood because you don't have the life of the vine flowing into you. And he'll let you stay around for a while as he did with Judas. This is chapter 6. And he says to the disciples, you don't want to leave too, do you? He's like, everybody else is walking away from me. Do you guys want to go as well? It's not, oh, please stay with me, guys. I'm going to be lonely. Jesus is not needy and clingy. He's not like that 15-year-old boy or girl you went with who you tried to break up with, who pestered you for six months with phone calls. Jesus is not like that. Jesus says, if you want to go, there's the door. Don't let it hit you on the way out. (laughs) That's in the message version. Um, But he is, like, I think sometimes we have painted this picture in our contemporary society of this wishy-washy, soft, needy Jesus who just, like, will, you know, like, he's just so sad of anybody. Jesus is like, if you don't want to follow me on my terms, away you go. And I love what the disciples, I love what Simon Peter answered him here. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that You are the Holy One of God. He says, where else would we go? And I know that feeling. When life gets hard, sometimes you do think, I don't know about it. This Christian life is so hard. You go, well, what else would I do? (laughs) Like, where else would I go? Because eternal life is only found in Jesus. And then Jesus replied, I have not chosen you, the twelve, yet one of you is a devil. He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who, though one of the twelve, was later to betray him. So for... Months or maybe years after this, Judas is still hanging out with Jesus, even though Jesus knows he's a devil. It's a bit like the wheat and the tares, isn't it? You're like, well, why doesn't Jesus... Sometimes Jesus will leave people for a while, even though they're not part of the vine. 
Maybe he's hoping they will get engrafted in. But eventually the truth will come out. The deadness of spirit will come out. There's a lot of people who are fans of Jesus when he's doing what they want, but they're not true followers. And as soon as the heat comes, as soon as the pressure comes, as soon as there's a struggle in their life, they walk away. I've been in ordained ministry for 12, 12 years, I think, now. And I've honestly, I've had such an immense privilege of leading a lot of people to faith in Christ, leading a lot of people through that salvation prayer. And it's a joy and a privilege every time I do it. But I can honestly say probably 25% of those who have prayed the prayer didn't remain in the vine. Maybe they were caught up in emotion. Maybe life was hard and they saw Jesus as a get-out-of-jail-free card. Maybe something else was going on. Maybe they fancied a girl in the, in the church and they thought, if I become a Christian, she'll go out with me because she's a Christian too and she doesn't want to go out with somebody who's not a Christian. But it could have been many reasons, but they didn't remain in the vine. And that's just the way it is. We can't, you know, we're not going to do a a five-year vetting process for people. You just have to trust that when people say they want Christ, they want Christ. But even Jesus had that. He says, it says many disciples stopped following him. He didn't turn them away to begin with, even though he knew it would happen. And so we need to, we need to be, we need to be sure, or we need to, I'm trying to think of what I'm trying to, not everyone who says they're a Christian is a Christian. Not everything that says it's Christian is Christian. Not every person on social media who says they were praying today is a Christian. Because sometimes Christians get so hyped up when they see a celebrity saying something Christian, we'll go, wow, are they a Christian? And we start promoting it all over social media, and the next night they're out sleeping around and getting drunk and doing all sorts of stuff. And we're like, you know, we need to be really careful that we don't say people are Christians just because they're around Jesus, but maybe they've never been connected to Jesus. And that was Judas. Judas had never surrendered his life to Jesus. But then there's true followers. There's real branches. There's authentic disciples like Peter who say, Jesus, I believe you are the the one who brings eternal life and there's nowhere else I would go to. There's no other source of life. I'm going to skip a wee bit here because I'm just looking at my clock here and I don't want to keep you till after lunch. So that's one group. Dead wood that hasn't the life of the vine flowing through it. They have no spiritual life to begin with. But then there's another group. Look at the second part of verse 2. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it will be even more fruitful. And my point is this. Pruning is a reward for fruitfulness. Pruning is a reward for fruitfulness. Look at what Jesus says. If you bear fruit, the reward is a Caribbean cruise. The reward is that you'll be wealthy and healthy and whole all your life. The reward is the latest BMW. The reward is that, you know, you'll have a happy life forever. The reward is that I'll give you the spouse that you want. The reward is that you'll have six-pack and no cellulite. That's not what Jesus says. Jesus says, if you bear fruit, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to prune you. And you're like, that doesn't sound like a reward to me. I always saw pruning as punishment. It was like, I'm following Jesus, I step out of line, I do something wrong, and out come the big pruning scissors. You know, I'll sort you out, Cooney, I'll get you back in line, I'll get rid of some of that stuff. 
Uh, and so here comes Edward Scissorhands, you know, just chopping off all this stuff from my life just to, to make me miserable enough to go back to Jesus. That's what I thought pruning was, but that is not what Jesus says here. He says that when you are fruitful, when God looks at you and sees the life of Jesus in you and flowing out of you, he sees all this good stuff and he goes, I'm going to prune them. Why? Because there's even more good stuff in there that I want to get out. Let's think about this carefully because this is a passage that confuses. What is pruning? In terms of what a gardener does to a vine, what is pruning? Well, I I went to the source of all knowledge for this, Wikipedia. And this is what Wikipedia says. Pruning is a horticultural practice involving the selective removal of parts of a plant, such as branches, buds, or roots. Reasons to prune plants include deadwood removal, shaping by controlling and directing growth, improving or maintaining health, and increasing the yield or quality of flowers and fruits. The practice entails targeted removal of diseased, damaged, dead, non-productive, structurally unsound, or otherwise unwanted tissue from crop and landscape plants. That's catchy right there. Uh, But two phrases stood out to me, and these two phrases were this. Selective removal and targeted removal. It's not like the gardener jumps in with a big bunch of hedge clippers and just has a free-for-all, just whacking all around them, cutting everything off, as I do sometimes when I'm gardening and cutting things off. You know, just let's just cut it all down. And He's selective. He's specific. He's targeted. Anything that is hindering the growth is removed. Anything that is taking life away from the fruit is removed. Anything that is draining the strength of the vine is removed. Anything that might weigh it down is removed. Anything that is dead, decaying, or unwanted is removed. Any leaves that are prevented, because a lot of the sap in a vine can be used just to produce leaves. And so you might have a big, beautiful vine, but you have no fruit, because all the energy is producing leaves. And then what do the leaves do? They stop the sun getting at the grapes. And so you might have a beautiful looking vine and Jesus says, no, it's not about how beautiful you are, it's about how much fruit you bear. I don't care what you look like. I don't care how beautiful your leaves are. It's about how fruitful you are. And so he targets the things that are draining the life from fruitfulness. And he's, he's almost surgical in his precision. He has only one concern and that is the well-being of the branch and fruit, future fruitfulness from that branch. So let's look at John 15, 2 and what he means by this. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it will be even more fruitful. You become a Christian. You commit yourself to Christ. The life of Jesus starts flowing in you, out of you. You start to serve, you start to give, you're starting to share your faith with people. There's evidence of fruit in your life. You're growing. The people can see it. There's lots of good stuff happening, and, and it's exciting, and, and you're impacting others. But then you slow down a bit. You hit a plateau. Your passion starts to dip a bit. You begin to pull back. Not too much, but ever so slightly. You, you get busy. You start adding more and more activities into your life. You start working longer and longer hours. You start doing more and more things. Start spending more and more time on that hobby. You give attention to other things. And his kingdom and his righteousness starts drifting slowly down the list. And these other things start going up the list above Jesus. 
And as I said last week, we get attached to things as humans so quickly. We get attached to things, good things that God gave us, and we make them God things. We give them a level of importance in our lives that they were never meant to have. And over time, they can begin to drain us, our energy, our passion, and take away time and resources that Jesus wants for his kingdom. And so God looks at our lives. He sees our potential. He sees our potential fruitfulness. He sees what our lives could become. He sees that that there is so much more within us that still hasn't reached its full potential. He sees what we can be in the future. And he sees there's things that are going to stop us from getting there. He sees that if you keep staying the way you are, you will never reach your full potential. That you've attached yourself to things and people that are draining the life. They're stealing the passion, your best energy, and you're devoting yourself to them. And if you stay attached to those things, you're never going to get from here to there. And God wants you to get there. You're stuck here. You're frustrated here. You're you're, you're pouring all your life into all these other things here. And God says, you know what? You have the potential to go here. But if you stay attached here, you will never make it to there. Because they're going to slow you down. When I... I spent after university nearly two years in the States. And when I came back, I went to work for a company called Canyon in Belusk for a year. And it's a, a Japanese company. And the... I don't know if it was a Japanese thing or not, but whenever you travelled with, with Mr. Okamura, that was his name. I'm, I can never say that without bowing. Um, Mr. Okamura. Um, he had one rule. You were only ever allowed to bring hand luggage with you. Which is fine if you're going for an overnight. If you're going for a week to France, which I did once, that's a problem for me, okay? That is an issue for me because it literally meant you could pack like one shirt, spare boxers, because you want to wash them in between days, and uh, turn them inside out, turn them around, all that, you know. I'm joking. Um, and, uh, and your toiletries. That's all you could bring. A week in Paris I had at a trade show, and I had this little hand luggage bag. And I, would say, I said to my boss once, why does Mr. Akamura, I didn't ask him because he didn't speak English, uh, why does Mr. Akamura uh, only allow his hand luggage? He says he hates waiting at the other side. When he gets off the plane, he wants to get to his destination. He doesn't want to be waiting at a luggage carousel for a bag. He doesn't want to be dealing with lost baggage. He just wants to get to where he has to go without wasting time. So don't bring things that aren't essential for the journey. The extra baggage would slow us down. And I think there's something in that. God looks at our lives. He has a plan for us. He sees our potential. He sees where we're going. He sees where we could go. He sees all that he has put within us. He sees the fruitfulness we've already born and how much more fruitfulness there is. And he's saying, you know what? There's some things over here that you can't carry with you if you want to get here. There are some things over here that if you keep them, you, you can hold on to them if you want, but you're not going to get here. You're not going to get here as fast as, as I want to bring you there and you might not get there at all and so he steps in with his pruning scissors and he begins to cut some of those things away and he begins to remove selected removal targeted removal begins to remove some of those things that you thought were essential he challenges you to remove them and that's what more often happens he will first of all before he takes them away he will tell you to take them away he gives you a choice first of all he'll start convicting you he'll start to 
change your heart even towards some of those things. Some of those things that you used to be so drawn to. Some of those things on a Saturday night you used to love. Some of those things you used to get so excited about. Some even of those TV programs that you would never have missed. Some of that stuff, some of those relationships, some of those... All that stuff that... And you suddenly start going, that just doesn't hold the appeal for me anymore. And you're like, that's weird. It's God starting to prune, saying, you know what, I want to get you here, but you can't take that stuff with you. Have you ever been at the airport and been going through, you know, the, the worst, the most horrible bit of that airport is where you have to put the bags through the x-ray? I hate that bit. Anybody else? I hate it. I, and it's always, like, like, packed. There's never enough staff. And you're standing there and you're sweating and you're like, do I take my shoes off? Do I leave my shoes on? And, and all of that stuff. And, and, and have you ever had them put the thing through and you realize you have something in your bag? <laughs> Two liters of water. Um, like, or, or, I, or, I got a pen knife once. I had a nice pen knife in my bag. Um, the last time we were going through to Edinburgh about a month ago, there was stuff in there that I hadn't, that w- I hadn't been able to pack into that little tiny bag they give you. And, and, and at that point, you have a choice. You can go, I'm taking that with me. And they go, no, you're not. And I'm going, but that's my nicest pen knife. No, you're not. But I really like that pen knife. No, you're not carrying a pen knife onto a flight, you idiot. Um, but but if, if I want to keep that pen knife, I can't go on the plane to where I want to go. I have a choice. And I think there's things in our lives where God would almost say, yes, you can keep that if you want. But if you hold on to that, you can't go to where I want to take you. So you can have a choice. You can leave that behind. And you can go here, or you can hold on to it and stay there, frustrated and wondering why your life isn't moving forward. But one of the main ways that God cleans us, one of the main ways that God prunes us, is through what we're doing here this morning. It's through his word. It's through the Bible. It's through his word. As we hear his word being preached, as we, as we read his word, as we, as we listen to his word, there's things in his word, and it might even be happening to you this morning, and it starts to convict you. It starts to challenge you. It starts to, to speak into areas of your life. And you start to begin to go, you know what? I, I can't keep living like this. And that's what Jesus says here. Look at what he says to the disciples in verse 3. He says, you are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Do you know in the original Greek, the word for prune is this, kathero, from which we get catharsis, or, 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 or the, the cleansing. The word for clean, or for prune, is kathero. And then in verse 3, when, I, when he says you're already clean, it's katharos. It's the same root word. And they both mean almost the same thing. In other words, to prune is to clean, and to clean is to prune. And Jesus says this, you're already clean. You're already pruned. Why? Because of my word. When Jesus spoke, God spoke. The words of Jesus are the words of God. And so as the disciples listened to Jesus, it had a cleansing effect in their lives. It began to deal with some stuff in their lives. It began to purify some stuff in their lives. And it's exactly the same in our lives. As we spend time on his word day by day, as we come to church and hear his word, as we listen to his word, as we study his word, it's like a, it's like a spiritual bath. There's something beautiful about the word of God that when you spend time on it day by day, it begins to change your thinking. It begins to clean up your life. It begins to wash out some of those attitudes, some of those things that were once so important to you. Look at what Ephesians 5.26 says. It says that we can be holy and clean. How? 
washed by the cleansing of God's word. God's word purifies us. It cleanses us. It washes away some of the stuff. And you know what I realized as I worked with Mr. Ochamura? I realized that there was a lot of stuff that I thought I needed that I didn't need. You ever gone on holidays and done that? You pack like enough for three months for a week in Lanzarote and you come home with 90% of the stuff that you never even tried on. Like you've gone to Lanzarote with enough clothes for like winter, summer, spring and autumn uh, and you go, why did I cart all this? Like there's so much stuff that you think you need in this life that you, you can't let go of and actually you look back and you go, I didn't need that at all. And actually if I would have brought that with me, I wouldn't have been able to get where God wanted me to go but it doesn't mean it's not painful pruning can be painful pruning is like spiritual surgery and no surgery feels good at the time nobody goes flip i'd love some good surgery this week surgery is not something you enjoy you only have surgery when it's necessary but you would rather have a tumor cut out of your body and live than to keep that tumor in your body and die Surgery is necessary, but it's painful. But it's removing something that is not good for you. And that's what pruning feels like. It can feel like punishment. It can feel like God is cutting you off and really what he's doing is cutting you back. You feel like you're being cut off, but actually you're just being cut back. As someone once said, it's hard to trust someone who's coming at you with pruning shears. But here's something we need to keep in mind. And I read this or I heard this somewhere recently. There's no growth without change. Next slide there. There's no growth without change. There's no change without loss. And there's no loss without pain. And we want the change. We just don't want the loss of the pain. We want the change. We all want things to change in our life. We just don't want to change. And so the question is this. What is there in your life today that doesn't look like what you want your life to look like tomorrow? What is there in your life today that as you look to the future, you go, I don't want that in my life. Are you going to prune it? Are you going to cut it away? Are you going to stay frustrated where you are? And sometimes after you're pruned, it can feel like there's not much left. It feels like you've been stripped bare. It feels like God has taken away everything that was important to you. It feels like you're naked. Because when all those leaves are stripped off that you used to cover, all those leaves of success, all those leaves of relationships, all those leaves of external stuff, when that's cut away, you can feel a bit naked and vulnerable. And yet, sometimes all you can feel like, all you're left with is Jesus. But I often say this, when Jesus is all you have, it's only then that you realize that Jesus is all you need. Sometimes Jesus cuts us back so far that we feel like there's nothing left, but we've still got him. And as long as we've still got him, we've got everything. The story is told that the Pope visited Michelangelo once while he was in his studio sculpting a a statue. He wanted to see him sculpt the statue of David. Uh, And the Pope asked him, how do you know what to cut away? And Michelangelo said this, I simply get a bit of rock and cut away anything that doesn't look like David. And Jesus looks at our lives, and God looks at our lives, the Father looks at our lives, the gardener, and he says, I'm only going to cut away anything that doesn't look like Jesus. I'm going to cut away anything that doesn't look like the the person I want you to become. And he has only one goal, and that is abundant fruitfulness. And so my final point 
is this this morning. God is intimately involved in my life. God is intimately involved in my life. God is intimately involved in your life today. See, Jesus could have used all sorts of descriptions for the father. He could have said the father's the boss. He could have said the father's the owner, but he said, no, the father's the gardener. He's the vine dresser. And the difference between the owner of the vineyard and the gardener in the vineyard is this. The owner can keep a distance. The gardener's hands on. The gardener gets down and gets dirty. The gardener has to touch it. The gardener hey, can't keep a distance. The, no one gets closer to the branches than the gardener. He's intimately involved in planting, growing, looking after, and tending to the life of every branch and of bringing forth the best from every shoot, of taking care of every aspect of the branch's life. And what Jesus is saying here is that when we make Jesus our vine, our source of life, God becomes intimately involved in our life. God becomes hands-on in our lives. He is close to us. He's at work in us. He's caring for us. And he's wanting to bring forth his very best from our lives. And we need to understand this, that the gardener's hand is never so close to the branches when he's pruning it. The gardener's hand is never so close to the branch as when he is pruning it. And God's hand is never so close to our lives as when he's pruning our lives. He comes close to us. He comes tenderly down to us. He's intimately involved and he gets his hands dirty. And God's deepest longing is that we would know him, that we'd be close to him, that he'd be close to us and that we would bear much fruit. But it's sometimes when that pruning is happening, sometimes in our lives God feels so distant, doesn't he? Have you ever gone through a season like that where it feels like your prayers are going no higher than the ceiling? That wilderness experience. That time when you feel so far from God. You try to worship and you're going through the motions, but you just feel barren, you feel dead. That time when you're trying to read the word and it's just words on a page. You want to get passionate about God, but there's just nothing there. Even in those moments, if you're truly connected to Christ, his hand is at work. He's working in you. He's working for you. His fingerprints are all over your life. And he's working to remove some stuff. He's working to shape some stuff. And he's working for your good and for his glory. And it's only as we look back on our lives that we see his hand very often. You know, when I, I'm going to finish with a story. When I was at, at, I'd become a Christian just before my 15th birthday. And, and I was really on fire. I was passionate for Christ. I was really going for it. And then I went off to university and I, and I wandered a bit. I strayed a bit. I went off and did my own thing. But I, I would still probably have said I was a Christian, but I wasn't living like a Christian. I was, uh, I, I was living just a different lifestyle. And, 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 uh, and I wasn't going to church or anything like that. Uh, or very little. And, uh, and I just, my passion for God had just gone a bit. And, and, um, then July 1998, which is how old I am, July 1998, I had just uh, graduated from Jordanstown. And uh, it was that summer. And, and I just completed my finals. And I, I happened one night to be up at New Horizon, the big Christian conference in Korean. And I, I just happened to be there, and there just happened to be a speaker that night, a guy called Alistair Begg, a, a Scotsman, a guy from Glasgow. And I remember as he preached that night, I turned to my friend Richie Irwin, who was beside me, and I said, Richie, that's the sort of preaching I need to hear every week. 
I need teaching like that every week just to, to get back to where I know I need to be with God. Well, at that time, I had planned to go to America to work for six months as part of a graduate marketing program. I'd had a few interviews, been offered a few jobs, and I kept turning them down because, on my God, I knew they weren't right. And they were really good jobs, and, and the program that was run that said you weren't allowed to turn down a job. If you got offered one, you had to take it, and I'd turned down three, I think, at this stage. And so they were getting a wee bit frustrated with me. Um, and... and uh, And my prayer life was pretty non-existent at this point, apart from I was praying one prayer, and it was this. God, would you open and close doors for me? God, would you open and close doors for me? At the time, I was working for Coca-Cola, doing promotional work in bars and clubs, and and at the weekends in supermarkets, giving out uh, free Coke, uh, that's Coca-Cola, to to people. Um, You've got to clarify that these days. Um, and uh, the Saturday after New Horizon finished, I was in Dunmurray Tesco giving out uh, free samples of Coca-Cola. And the girl I was working with went off to the bathroom. And just as she went off, this little man came around. He was in his 80s. And he stopped and he, I said, do you want a drink of Coca-Cola? He said, yeah. And he, and he said, is this what you do all the time? And I said, no, I've just finished university and I'm trying to figure out the next step. And he looked at me and he said, you know what you need to do? You need to ask God to open and close doors for you. Uh, and I looked at him and, and I said, I'm, I'm a Christian, kind of. And, uh, and, and do you know, that's the only prayer I've, I've been praying recently. Uh, and he said, he said, what's your name? And I said, Craig. He said, Craig, I don't normally come in here on a Saturday. It's too busy for me on a Saturday. But I was just walking past there on my way home. And I felt the Lord told me to come in here. And, and, and now I, I, I know why. And, and he took out a little notebook out of his pocket. And he said, I'm going to write your name down. I'm going to pray for you that God will direct you, that God will open and close doors for you. Uh, and he did that. He wrote it down and away he went. And just as he walked off, the girl I'd been working with came back. If she had been there, we wouldn't have had the conversation. And the following week, I went for an interview for a job. And they'd wanted to send me to Cleveland, Ohio, which... I didn't want to go to Cleveland, Ohio. I wanted to go to New York, L.A. or San Francisco. You know? Somebody said Cleveland was the armpit of America. And it kind of was. Um, But as I went for this interview, I knew in my knower. You know when you just know that this is... And so I I, I took the job, and I couldn't understand why I'd taken this job in Cleveland, Ohio. And a week after I accepted it, I was talking to my friend Peter Linus. Some of you know Peter from Evangelical Alliance. And Peter said, so what's happening with the America thing? I said, Peter, I'm going to Cleveland, Ohio. And uh, he said, do you know that's where Alistair Begg's church is? The guy, the Scottish pastor, who I assumed was in Scotland, he said, my dad's really good friends with Alistair. Uh, That's where Alistair's church is. Not only that, his church was one mile down the same road as the office. The office that the company in Bangor had placed me in in Cleveland, Ohio, was on the same road as the church that this guy pastored. And I spent nearly two years there. I, 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 I came back to the Lord. I, I got involved in ministry there. I, I, uh, I, 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 I started sitting under that teaching every week. I got to spend time with Alistair. And you could look at all that and go, that's coincidence. That's not coincidence. The guy that I'd said two weeks before, I need to sit under that preaching every week. Two weeks later, I found out I was going to be sitting under his preaching every week for nearly two years. And my point is simply this, that God is at work in our lives, even if we have no clue that he is. 
Even when all the evidence seems to suggest the contrary and the coincidences, the, cir- or the, the, the circumstances, the, the just so happens, when we feel distant from him, he is still close to us. Even when we let him down, he remains faithful. Even if you feel he has abandoned you, I want to tell you that God is there watching over you, beside you, bringing people and circumstances and situations into your life for your good and his glory. And if you're connected to Christ, he will never let you go. But be aware, if you're connected to Christ, what you're saying is, God, come and shape me. Come and do what you want in me. Come and even prune some things off me if you know they're not going to take me to where you want me to go. But here's the thing. I know it's for my good, and so I trust you.